listening to Solace Radio on the Meander Radio Network. How about a couple of uh, jokes? How can you boo before you even hear them? It's probably my wife, too. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. So what kind of motor vehicles are in the Bible? The Lord drove Adam and Eve out of the garden in a fury. David's triumph was heard throughout the land. Honda, because the apostles were all in one accord. Who was the greatest comedian in the Bible? Samson. He brought the house down. Who, which servant of God was the most flagrant lawbreaker in the Bible? Why? Yeah, right. Broke them all. Okay. Which Bible character has no parents? Right. Son of none. Wow. I'll tell you. You guys are tough. All right. Yeah, I know. But half the people here don't remember them. If you want new jokes, you need to supply new jokes. I didn't write these. So, I mean, we are in what's, uh, the book of Revelation, part 5. Avina Malkino, our Father of King, Lord, I pray that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth, Lord, would only be of you, or whatever I've missed, that you bring it forth, whatever is of the flesh, that you would strike it in Yeshua's name. Amen. So last week, I was speaking about how we will reign as a rod of iron. So one of the titles used to describe the Bride of Messiah, right? That's us. The Bride of Messiah, us, is the sons of God. From Matthew 5, 9, that's where it comes from. It uses the term sons of God. Also in Romans 8, 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. And this term, sons of God, is found numerous times, right? In not only the Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures, but the apostolic writings, the Greek covenant. And this is a little on the side, but it's interesting, especially considering the interpretations that are around of Genesis Breshit, chapter 6, verse 2, because they use the term sons of God, and most teachings teach it as angels or other beings. That's a problem. But the reason I'm, I'm just mentioning it here is so that we can frame the uh, understanding and the application for ruling in the millennial kingdom. God is consistent. You can't say sons of God means something one place and it means something else in another when it's always an understanding of being part of the host. Even in Genesis, you can't take this term sons of God out of the context that it is the, it is, they are sons and daughters. In the case there, it's sons that marry the, the women, but they've taken it as angels came into them and created the heroes. That's not consistent with Scripture, as disappointed as some may be. But in actuality, we need to understand this term of sons of God is reserved for human beings. Not for angels, not for Nephilim, not for anything. Because if you understand it that way, then you're going to have a problem with the term sons of God in other parts of the Scripture. Particularly here. So that's why it's important. I've taught about this before, uh, but I bring it up again because some obviously may not remember or weren't here. But we need to understand when this term sons, sons of God is very important and it's directed to us, not to something separate from us. And I'm telling you, it's a big deal out there. Everybody wants the mystery of the angels and having sex with women and all that kind of stuff. It really it doesn't add up when you look at the totality of Scripture. So I can think of lots of heroes in the Bible. But some people say they got together and this is where Hercules came from and all these other demagogues and all kinds of stuff. It's just not true. It doesn't really fit all of the text of Scripture. So, so we need to understand the sons of God because it affects how we understand it rule and ruling in the millennial kingdom. That's why it's important for us now. That it is us. It's not Nephilim. It's not weirdos. It's us, the Holy Host, that are the sons of God that will rule in the millennial kingdom, not angels or demagogues. 
Everybody with me? It's important. So, in chapter 3, in the, commu- in the community of Sardis, of course, chapter 3 of Revelation, we find behaviors that seem relevant to now. Talking about the Messianic community of Sardis. right? And here, the specific thing that the Lord is pointing out is the danger of dead works and the need of repentance. Lots of people out there doing works, they say they offer unto the Lord, but if the Lord hasn't, if He's not in them, then they're dead works. They have nothing to do with Him or His work. And we know that. We can see how those men came to Yeshua and said, Lord, Lord, we've been healing and throwing out demons in Your name. And the Lord says, You didn't do it for me. I don't know You. We have to be very wary of the works that we decide we're going to offer up to the Lord because Paul says it's useless. It's, it's a waste of time. In fact, it's a negative. Just doing good things doesn't necessarily mean that that's what the Holy Spirit has directed you to. If you're in charge, it's not of the Lord. The Lord's in charge. And so we tend to fill ourselves with dead works. And this was the problem in the community of Sardis. So it is relevant to us to be able to look at the works that we believe that we're called to and in fact what those works should look like because we suffer. How many people have, have dedicated lives to a church or a synagogue, hold their lives, and then they get burned out and they go, that was a waste of time because that isn't the service God's looking for. Yes, should we serve one another within a community? Absolutely. But the Lord desires that our works be a blessing to Him and build the kingdom, not our resume. Everybody with me? There's a tendency in our culture because of selfishness to build a resume. I do all these things. Look at me. That's building a human resume. When you're always talking about what you've done, what you did, what you've given, that are dead works. We shouldn't be puffing ourselves up and pointing out everything that we do in the kingdom of God. Because if you are, then it's not going to be credited to you. We're supposed to be humble, meek, and not focused on what we, what we can earn but focus on how we can glorify the Lord in the things that we do. It's about kavanah, hard attitude. And it is a problem in our culture. It is a problem in the church. It is a problem in the synagogue. It is also a problem within the messianic communities. Sardis is a messianic community. They weren't pagans. They were believers, and they've got issues. We have issues. So what is a dead work? Well, I started to describe what that is, but it's anything that emerges from one's heart that is not offered to Yeshua because we love Him. If we're doing something and expect something in return, accolades or whatever, then that is not a work to the Lord. People that are great philanthropists in the kingdom of God, you don't know who they are. Why? Because they don't boast about what they do. It's just, it's just the order of things. And because it breeds, if we're not working in the way, the, if we're not doing it for the Lord, it can breed selfishness. We have to be very conscious of it. So, a dead work is anything that emerges from our hearts, but it's not offered to Yeshua in love. You're all following me so far? Good, good, good. <laughs> not an ordinary bear. So let me phrase it another way. Maybe it'll help. Works of love glorify the Lord. Works of the flesh are not accepted and defile us. Everybody got that? Works of the flesh are not accepted and defile us. No matter how good they may look to you or how good they may look to your community, they are. They're not accepted and they will defile us. Works of love glorify the Lord, not us. If you find yourself, but I did this, but I do that. That was the problem with those men that were casting out demons and healing people. They were putting themselves before the Lord. Lord, look what we did. And then they threw them a bone in your name. You've got to be really careful of this because we can easily fall into these traps without really knowing that we do. That's why we 
need to always be introspective of ourselves and also that when people speak into our lives, that we can take correction in love. Remember, discipline is love if it's done correctly. People don't like discipline. I know. People are mad at me all the time. Discipline is love. Because discipline, if our heart is right, will get us back on track. It'll, it'll re, reboot, right? Kind of like a reboot. The computer's all frozen up. What do you do besides punch it? You reboot. But it's funny, the directions tell you don't do that, right? Don't turn it off. So what do you do with a computer that's frozen and you're banging on it and nothing happens? Reboot. It's so that you can have your 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 computer can have an, another crack at it and you can have another crack at it too, right? The attitude gets better when the computer comes up and is working right, right? Until it freezes again, right? Then what do you do? Well, I call Rich and he comes to my house and tells me how I screwed it up and fixes it for me. But he's very humble about it. He really is. I know what he's thinking, but he doesn't say it. <laughs> Actually, it's not true. I'm, I'm teasing him, but he's, he is very humble with that kind of stuff. He never says, how come you're doing this? Why didn't you do that? You know you shouldn't be doing that. He never says anything. He always says, no, I'll, I'll figure it out. Thank God. But not once has he gone around and told people, I fixed Rabbi's computer. Well, at least I'm not aware that you have. Besides, I'm not, I shouldn't have told you because now you're all going to go to Rich. I get first dibs. Dan has also fixed my computer on occasion too. He just fixes it. He never says how I screwed it up. He just fixes it. <sighs> so this, we, the, the, we love, so works that are loving God, it glorifies Him. Works of the flesh are not accepted and defile us. And from Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12-15, through 15, it says, Brothers, respect those who are working hard among you, those who are guiding you in the Lord and confronting you in order to help you change. All right, I'm going to read that again. I need you all to hear this. Brothers, respect those who are working hard among you, those who are guiding you in the Lord and confronting you in order to help you change. I've been trying to confront you a long time now, trying to show you how, where we need to change, not just me. But it's important that we be humble about that. It says in verse 13, even better verse, treat them with the highest regard and love because of the work they are doing. Right? Show me a little love. Wow, nobody gave any. And that's why you're constantly being exhorted to change. <laughs> Live at peace among yourselves. Don't be mad when I'm trying to redirect you. Be humble. Live at peace. Verse 14, But we urge you, brothers, to confront those who are lazy, your aim being to help them change. What does it mean by lazy there? Does it mean you don't work? No, but it means lazy in hearing the truth and being changed and being transformed. It's not talking about your physical laziness, although you could be but it's talking about spiritual laziness and the unwillingness to be confronted and to be counseled. Change. That's what this verse is talking about. Verse 14. Okay. But the second half of that. To encourage the timid, to assist the weak, and to be patient with everyone. See that no one repays evil for evil. On the contrary, always try to do good to each other, indeed to everyone. That's hard, right? Sometimes that's hard. Somebody does this wrong, we want our initial reaction, let's do them wrong, right? I'm not going to be taken advantage of. I'm going to get you good, right? The Lord would rather that we have we trust our relationship with the Lord enough and that the the goal that we're seeking is eternal life is that we would not lash out in anger and hatred. I don't think we should be stepped on, but I do think that as where it says in another scripture, to love your enemies, right? That's a hard thing to do too, clearly. From these kinds of verses, we can understand Yeshua's standard 
of behavior, and it defines dead works. Only works that proceed from the heart are acceptable. It was true in Sardis that Yeshua is addressing, and it's true now. Dead works can give us a false sense of hope and obedience. Again, I refer to those men that said they were healing and casting out demons. They had a false sense of security, didn't they? They had a false sense of obedience. In their minds, they were probably thinking, look how good we're doing. And Yeshua shuts it down. Nope. Nope. From Revelation chapter 3, verse 1b, the second half, and through 3. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. So this is why I've set up the other things. Because in this verse, people are deceived about where they're at with their walk with the Lord. You think you're alive, but you're really dead. Works without faith is dead. Faith without works is dead. But here you are. We can be deceived. We are deceived in our own flesh, in our own self-righteousness. We get deceived. We think we are alive because we serve the Lord on a checklist, whatever that may be, and being unaware that we are actually dead and not alive. That's a problem. If you think you're alive, you're not going to change anything, are you? Doing good, looking good, doing good, feeling good. And the Lord's going, oi vey, no, you've missed the mark. So this is the message talking to Sardis. They think they're in good shape. And the Lord Yeshua, through the messengers, telling them, you are not in good shape. You need to reevaluate where you're at. And indeed, we always need to be reevaluating where we're at. So there's an important message here in this, to, the, to this community, Messianic community in, in Sardis, um, that we are not exempt from. It says in verse 2, wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. So it's saying, you need to wake up before everything is lost that you know about me or you've done for me. If you evaluate your walk with the Lord, I'm doing pretty good and it's not good, that's the lie. And whatever little you may be doing is going to die if you don't correct it. So we need to be aware of what the Lord's standards are for the works that He desires that we will do because we love Him. It's imp- this is really important. So remember, so let me finish. All right, so let me go back to verse 2. So wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Here's a problem. How many of us don't like to be told that we're not doing good enough? None of us. Yet, there's a warning here. This messenger is coming and giving the message that what you're doing isn't good enough and you need to straighten it out. Don't be hostile about it. Don't be prideful about it. Change. Understand where the Lord's coming from, not where you're coming from. Look, the people in Sardis are being led astray by their their elders and their Shalmashim, aren't they? In some ways. And and just some people are just led astray because they desire to be willful. The Lord's looking for unity, not only as an individual with Him, but as a community with each other unto the Lord. Verse 3, So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. We all are in a position at times, if not regularly, irregularly regular, that we need to repent about the things that we fall short of when we recognize them. Because none of us have reached the goal. So it's always appropriate that we're going to find things in our lives that we need to repent of. And that we need to be accountable. We need to be able to take instruction. We need to take discipline, not just from the Holy Spirit, but, for the, but from those that the Lord has, has anointed and if you believe that, that myself or the elders here aren't anointed, you shouldn't be here. Because that's the process. It doesn't mean we're perfect. Absolutely not. 
It just means that if we trust the Lord, then we trust those that He has, he has raised up and we see their fruit. We don't blindly follow people. We follow people who, who produce fruit. Amen? That's how it should be. Just because somebody calls themselves a rabbi or a priest or a minister or a prophet or whatever, it should be based on the fruit that they produce on whether we should trust them or not. Trust is earned, right? Except for the Lord is God, you should be trusting Him. Everybody else, trust is earned. It's what you see and how they live. And that doesn't mean sinless. No human being lives sinless. That can't be the standard. So remember why you have received, have heard, and keep it and repent. So he's telling the community at Sardis, you got issues, you're into false works and stuff, and you need to repent of that. Repent and start with vocalizing it, but repentance is teshuva, which means to turn 180 degrees away from that sin, right? You all know that. You haven't repented if you continue with the same sin. There is no covering for repeated sin over and over again. Paul mentions it many times. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. So what wake up means repentance. Wake up means recognizing the shortcoming, whatever that thing is in your area, and that you repent. That waking up is repentance. We need to know, each of us as individuals as well as the community, we need to know, we need to know what the, the Lord desires, right, for each of us and our behaviors and and of course of all scripture defines that. But if we don't repent, if we're just walking our own walk, you are never going to see Yeshua coming. You are going to be one of the maidens that's lamps isn't full. You're not going to see him. It's going to be too late. So the, 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 these scriptures and the, this correction to the community of Sardis is, is for us. It's for us to reevaluate where we are, not just as a community, right? Because he didn't just pick a few people out. He said the community of Sardis. So nobody is exempt. If you're part of Bethel Gibor, you're part of this community. If the Lord speaks to this community, He's speaking to you and me and everybody. We can't in a community, some, we, I bring a message like this, somebody goes, yeah, I know somebody that really needs to repent. All right, well, that might be true, but how about you? Where are you at? It's easy. You know, it just can, it's so easy to, to call out somebody else's sin, but it's so hard for us to recognize our own issues where we need to be transformed, which always le leads to pride. So what the Lord desires in our thoughts and our behaviors is defined in Scripture. Yet, in our day, as in the community of Sardis and others, it was lost. They had lost the vision for what God desired. If you give up Torah, you will lose the understanding of what the Lord desires in your behaviors and your actions and your life. Hmm. Hmm. If we don't have Torah to understand and establish what God's desires are for us, we will fill in the blanks with our own garbage. Or mix and match it, which is usually what happens, right? Everybody's out there mixing and matching. We're not trying to mix and match here. We're really not. We do the best we can, and we learn, when we learn more, we, we try to change it. We should change it. Sometimes the changes are more difficult than others. But we're not here to mix and match and find our own peace. We're here to, 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 that the Lord would know that we are, are working at it, even in, in all the struggles that we have, and that even as, in our struggles of being held accountable, that we can have the joy of the Lord. Amen? Even when the Lord disciplines us, this is, seems to be a bit of a paradox, but it's not. In the Lord's discipline and love, we can find the joy of the Lord. Can I have an amen? That's an important facet because we all get that I don't like being disciplined, but within the discipline, if you can affirm that it's scriptural, then we should be able to have the joy of the Lord about learning how to do that better. If you're going to be miserable, you're not going to get it. Anybody that just cuts, cuts off truth and doesn't want to be pinched, right? They're not going to learn anything except more resentment. Don't pinch me again. 
don't you be pinching me again. I don't like that. And there's the Lord poking you, right? Hey, hey. There are times I can see, I can envision Yeshua discussing with the Pharisees and, and pointing to their chest going, hey, you're not listening. You are not listening. I don't see in Scripture where He clocked anybody, but definitely, He definitely was demonstrative when He needed to be demonstrative. Everybody knows what that means, right? Demonstrative. What we might think is overbearing, but there are times that he, he was bigger than life. He is bigger than life. He's God, but you know what I mean. That He's bigger than life, and there's times that He's real you know, humble in certain circumstances. But there's times when, when, when you, know, the, you know what hits the fan, that He's demonstrative, and, and the buck stops here. Threw Him out of the temple. That's one of them. There is only a finite amount of time that we can recapture the truth and change. We don't have forever to change. If we're with the Lord in eternity, we have eternity. But in the process of the walk, there's a finite amount of time. And we all may have different finite time. I made it to 61. But maybe that's the last one. I don't know. We can't all expect to, to, to live long because the Lord chooses. And what if you said, you know, when I hit 60, I'm really going to get serious and the Lord takes you at 40. You've got a serious problem. You know, there's a reason, there's a, there's a, a physical reason that that as people get older, they tend to find the Lord, right? They start feeling their mortality, right? Or they realize they can't run as much as they could or whatever. And so people, it's like going to prison and people get religion in prison. Most don't hold on to religion in prison. You all know that, right? I know, you know people like Bill, he spends a lot of time in prison. I mean, counseling people in prison, not being in prison. But, but I just wanted to clarify, Bill. I didn't want to leave you hanging out there, right? So, but they, we, we tend, it's like 9-11, you know, that's coming up Sunday, the anniversary. People freak out in certain moments, but they don't hold on to it. it doesn't, why? Because it's not based on a relationship with the Lord. It's based on a relationship with mortality, or the perception of our mortality is running out. So as Sardis is warned, so are we. It's, it is not limited to the past, or the future, or the present. present. The warnings are now for us. The warnings for, are for every generation that have read these words. We have an accountability to receiving the message. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. I've taught about that. I'll te- teach you more about it. But this, if the, a name being erased from the book of life, that, the people that are in the book of life are the ones that will have eternal life with the Lord. If you're not in the book of life, you won't. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. What does that tell us? Well, one thing it tells us there's a definite change through this scripture that one can lose the eternal promise. Salvation, the promise of salvation can be lost. Getting our relationship, the, the lives that we present to God, if, if, if we get it wrong, it has and can have eternal consequences due to stubborn heart. You know, the, the, the modern culture of most of the churches, once saved, always saved, you're saved at the very beginning. You know, it doesn't matter what you do. Nonsense. I don't know what you came out of, but it's just nonsense. Nowhere does it say that in Scripture. Not anywhere. It just doesn't. And the lives of the apostles actually affirm that the, the eternal life comes at the end because they walked it. If, if, it was, if it was at the beginning, Paul wouldn't have had to do anything. He wouldn't have had to run the race. I got it already. I'm not going to do any of this stuff. I don't care about those people. I'm good. The Lord may not like it, but He can't do anything about it because He gave me eternal salvation and He can't take it back. 
It's just not true. That's a lie from the pit of hell. There's no that the scripture supports that premise. So that's why it's important that we can see with spiritual eyes and hear with spiritual ears so that we can understand exactly what God's expecting of us. Now, you know, we gotta we gotta get over this struggle between works, right? You know, legalistic works, right? Anything unto the Lord is a legalistic work. The Lord gives us a legal document to work through. The difference is legalism. The Lord gives us a legal document. He he adheres to the word that he gave. He, gave. he won't break his promises. That's legal, right? He made a statement. He's going to hold to it. Legalism is when we can distort those things, right? And we can use them in the flesh or use the flesh to defend things that we do or don't do. How stubborn are our hearts? I can't evaluate how stubborn your heart is. I can tell sometimes when you're stubborn, just like you can tell when I'm stubborn. There's no way I can emphasize enough how much we need to look at ourselves within our own community. Indeed, maybe within all Messianic communities. Because isn't it interesting that there's this huge, well, a big Messianic community. And when Revelation is given to the seven Messianic communities there, but we, we have all these Messianic communities all over the world, and they're all over the place. They're all at different standards and doing different things and believe different stuff. So we're in the same boat that the Lord didn't have the same message for these seven church communities or, or, or Messianic communities, did he? he? He was addressing differences in those seven communities. There might have been some overlap, but there's seven different issues going on, and I think we find ourselves in that same kind of avenue. So the revelation here in these early chapters is trying to address these communities so that they can get straightened out so that they can maximize their, their eternal relationship with Yeshua. I would hope that we all would want to maximize our eternal relationship with the Messiah. Amen? I would hope, if your heart isn't there, then you really need to check that and repent, because that's going to be a major problem. It is a major problem. But if you wait till the Lord shows up, what are you going to be doing? You're going to be, um, ah, oh, but I, I'm, Sayonara. We can't look at Scripture as, Look what they did. We need to look at scriptures. How are we doing compared to what they did or what they didn't? Are we better than the messianic communities of 2,000 years ago? Are we better than them? Will we miss our shortcomings because we think we're better than them? And will we miss the Lord's standards because we think we are better than them? We, we have this tendency right, to fail to, to recognize the failures of ages past. One of the biggest problems of men is we're doomed. We can't remember the past, right? In 50, 60 years, everything's changed, right? We, we, we're, we live in a, in a world that has revisionist history. Everything's revised in 40 or 50 years. Maybe even less and less than that now, but everything gets revised. The truth of the Constitution is hard to find. The, tr the truth of the Holocaust is harder and harder to find. I mean, all these things, because there's all these revisionists out there changing the truth. And it's happened with his standards. God doesn't have any standards because he loves us. How dumb that sounds, right? God loves us so much he has no standards for how we behave. Yeah! I'm with that! You're going to be the first to be shot out of the cannon. If we fail to understand and receive the warnings that the Lord spoke to the seven uh, messianic communities, we are going to continue on the wrong road not knowing the truth. In Revelation 3.6, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the Messianic communities. So what does that mean? We need to listen to the Holy Spirit warning us to hear and to hear correctly. And the evidence is, is in the past that says, look, 
this is where they were at, start doing some comparison shopping, right? The coupons aren't going to get us out. There's no get-out-of-jail-free card. Yeshua is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. And unfortunately, that's kind of how he's viewed sometimes. I got Jesus. Well, you may have him, but he doesn't have you. We need to listen so that we can respond, so that we can lay down, evil down for the dramatic, but lay down where we, where we seek out our weaknesses that will lay those weaknesses down and, and pick up the truth. And everybody will say, well, how do I do that? Well, if we read Torah, you're going to get it. You're going to understand. God, the Lord's standards didn't change, did they? He didn't give up. Then that's the problem with modern theology. Well, Yeshua did away with the Hebrew Scriptures. So why would Yeshua do away with the instruction that defines how He desires that we live? The difference is that we're not under the penalty of death through His sacrifice. But we still need direction because if we don't, we're just going to do whatever we want. We're going to run amok, amok, amok. And we do run amok. We all, at times, run amok. Remember the book of life? I just mentioned it, but it, it's, it's in the book of Revelation. At, it, it, its emphasis is at the, in the last chapters because it has to do with who goes to eternal life and who doesn't. Who is in the book of life? We're born into the book of life, but our lives determine whether we remain in the book of life or are taken out of the book of life. Interesting. When I grew up, when I grew up and trained in Orthodoxy, they, they believed it differently. They believed you had to earn the right to be in the Book of Life, and then you could be taken out of it, or never be in it, or be written out of it. Different. If that's not really, we're born into the Book of Life. It's our lives that determine whether we stay in the Book of Life. You know, a lot of people go, "Why does the Lord need a book?" It's a phrase. It's a way for us, as the limited limited understanding that human beings have, that we can relate to how we fit in. The Lord doesn't need a book of life. We do. Because we, we can relate to we're in it or we're not in it. At least we should be able to relate to that. Is it possible to be erased if we don't repent of evil? There's a question. Of course, what is evil? Whatever Yeshua defines, it is the beginning and it begins with idol worship and all the idols that you have in your life. The definition of evil is anything against the Lord, but in particular, it always starts with idol worship and the things that we hold in our lives as idols, whatever those things may be to each of us as individuals, that, that anything we put before the Lord, if we put something before the Lord, that is an idol. An idol isn't just a cross or um, a Star of David or a, a silver statue or an African mask, right? A lot of the things that we'll focus on are things that we're, we're so weird about stuff. Um, somebody likes sons. They have a son or two in their house. And people tell them it's pagan. Everything under the sun can be, ha, <laughs> no pun intended, everything under the sun can be considered pagan if you're worshiping it. But if you like a sun and it has a happy smile on it, I'm good. But if you come out every morning and you bow before it, we have a problem. I, I, I think that we need to understand what the Lord thinks idols are. And idols are, 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 is, is an image of something or a person or a thing that we put before Him. There's things that we shouldn't do. Don't build standing stones. I thought I was mentioning the day, and I said, well, there's a paradox. Because the first thing God told Joshua to do entering land was to put up a standing stone. So, I'm not teaching on that today. We've got enough issues today. So, we need to change how we may define idol, idolatry. So, so if, you do a, if you're doing good works, but it's not of the Lord, but you're doing it because you like it, that's an idol. It can be an idol. I like going to prisons, teaching the Gospel, because it makes me look better. It's an idol. Using something of the Lord to use it for your own personal gain. 
I know you don't do that though. But Miss Ella asked for an example and I looked at your face and that was the example that came up. Yeah. Praise God. <laughs> it was the best I could do, Miss Ella, at the moment. <laughs> so let's, let's, let's leave Sardis alone for a little while. Let's talk about the next community, which is Philadelphia. So what is the unique about what this community is suffering from? Because they're all suffering from Revelation 3.9. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come out and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. So I think we need to define what this evil is, right? And the, there's, there's lots of different things about this, but I believe you, usually what I perceive as the majority opinion uh, is that it is the false converts to Judaism, right? The, the sanctuary, the synagogue of Satan, or it's groups of Jews who were teaching a perverted Betzor, a gospel. So it could be people that actually said they believed in Yeshua were, were teaching perversion, which that's what Paul deals with all the time. So I, maybe it's a mix of both. Um, I don't know it's that important that we really uh, understand it totally as long as we know how to apply ourselves to it. Um, so let's read from Re- Revelation chapter 3, 10, and 11. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of test, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Verse 11, I am coming quickly, hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. Well, in context to the, the, the synagogue of Satan, which is in the midst of the church of Philadelphia, he's encouraging them. He's identifying what they are. And you know maybe we have a less understanding of what it is, but he's identifying what is in the midst of them. And apparently they have not come against it. It's living there now. It was living there then, and they were allowing it to go on. And the Lord's saying, this is a problem. The only way the synagogue of Satan or uh, unbelievers or distorted believers are going to bow at our feet, because I'm relating to the Scripture, is that we are not them. That we are standing up and that we can be seen as different. We don't tolerate it. We don't hide it. We stand against it. And in that way, the Lord will bring them to the true believer's feet. Everybody following me here? Because we live in a culture where there's all kinds of choices out there. A lot of them not as good as others. You know, so there, if, there's, if we're thinking that the synagogue of Satan doesn't exist in our midst, we're wrong. Satan operates best in the church or the synagogue. Where he operates. That's, that's the people he wants to get. Why wouldn't he? You know that song, I hear you knocking, but you can't come in. The problem is we're always opening the door. Spiritually. Saturday Night Live. Everybody remember Landshark? Don't open the door, Landshark. Oh, meter man. I know you're the Landshark. No, no flowers. Flower boy. Then he finally, you know, they come over, he opens the door and the shark eats him. Right? You're the Landshark. No, I'm not. You're bad. You want to get me. No, I don't. We can open the door if we are prepared. If we are solid in our relationship with the Lord, we, if we are prepared, we can open that door and they will bow before our feet. If we're not, they'll consume us. So we need to be wise. And, and how we know the difference between the synagogue of Satan or the church of Satan is Yeshua's community. What is Yeshua's community supposed to look like? We, can, we should be able to tell the difference. Alright, maybe a bad example, but if we're just making a simple comparison, if we're in a body that stands against homosexuality compared to a body that accepts homosexuality, what do we have? Church of Satan. Right? If we're convinced 
that the theology of God allows for that as an option for a lifestyle, that's synagogue of Satan or the church of Satan. I, I'm not judging it. What I'm saying is so we can see what that might look like. That's simple. That's simple. It's a lot more complicated than that. I was just at a meeting. I was asked to go to a meeting at the First Presbyterian Church in Bethlehem. It's a 2,000-member church. They're dividing. They're splitting. It's a big deal because they chose, the, the, the elders and, and their, uh, they chose to uh, support the homosexual lifestyle and stuff, and the rest of the church didn't want to do it. And they, they're leaving the Presbyterian church, the Sinia, and they're joining a new one that doesn't tolerate those kinds of things. Anyway, I'm giving you just a short of it. But I was there. They, the new pastor that they brought from Atlanta was there and uh, couldn't answer all of my questions. But there, clearly there's a difference. You know, if, if we do the things of the devil, that is the church of Satan, the synagogue of Satan. Would everybody agree with that? You can't say you're not that if you do it. Now, does, does that mean that there can't be a battle in our own home for that? No, of course there is battle. And we've had people of certain beliefs and they're not here. Why? Because... I won't capitulate to it because the Lord says you can't capitulate to it. Am I grieved for people that leave that make bad decisions? Of course I am. Do I go after them? Sometimes. Really depends. Not all breakups are ones that you can just go out and get them. You know, people can get pretty nasty, right? Besides, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict them, not me. So I want to read 10 and 11 again. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I, I, will, I also will keep uh, you from the hour of testing. Well, we're going to talk about that. Not only going to talk about it today, but I'm going to talk about it in other places too. Uh, that the hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. If we're living a life of just the world, even though we call ourselves believers, we will lose our crown. That's, it's not my opinion. It's what the Word says. It matters what we do or don't do. It matters what we say or we don't say. It matters what we teach and don't teach. It's, can be the, it's the difference between life and death. So what does it mean, I will keep you from the hour of testing? Well, this is one of the Scriptures where the doctrine of rapture comes from. Those that are faithful will be protected. I believe it's saying that. But not that they're raptured out of the world, but it has everything to do with relating to the land of Goshen. The Lord will protect His own here. This is why the book of Revelation is related to the book of Exodus. Many other reasons that will come up in the, in the coming studies. But that this is not, there is no, the Lord didn't rapture Israel out of Egypt. He protected them. And here again, He said He will have some protection. But I, I need to, I'm going to define a little bit now and I'll define it uh, later in other messages. But it has, there, it doesn't mean nobody is going to see trial. Or tribulation. It doesn't mean that. The Israelites saw what was going on in the land of Egypt. You don't think they didn't see everything going on? Of course they did. But unfortunately, as I said, this verse is used to support a doctrine of rapture, meaning that the true church will avoid, all, will avoid everything or be saved totally from the tribulation period. But this obviously contradicts other scriptures. First of all, it talks about suffering martyrs. Who are the suffering martyrs? Well, they are of those that are protected. There's no rapture here. I do believe there's divine protection. I believe, I believe the promise is that the faithful will not be destroyed in the tribulation. Not in its totality. I think there will be martyrs and some will suffer. But in the totality, they will not be destroyed. But we will be witnesses. If we happen to be those that are here, we will be witnesses. Those alive 
and we will see the suffering and be afflicted by it, but not destroyed. We will be witnessing the victory by Yeshua. And of course, we're going to see this during the seven-year tribulation, right? What's known as the seven years. But it does not mean that not one life of the faithful will not be lost. I believe they will. I think the Scriptures are pretty clear about that, that there will be martyrs. Well, if you're not a believer, then you can't be a martyr. If you're a martyr for a cause, and you're going to be martyred, then these are believers that are martyred. They're not unbelievers being martyred. They don't represent anything of Yeshua. Everybody following me here? Because it's taught sometimes that the martyrs are the unbelievers. It's just not true. People aren't martyred for a cause they don't believe in. Maybe they're martyrs for the enemy. Understanding the Lord's plan is vitally important from His perspective, not ours. It affects what we think and what we do. Yeshua has promised that not a hair on our heads, this is from Luke, Right, Luke chapter uh, 12, 4-8, but in verse 7, why every hair on your head has been counted. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. All right, so how do we take this Scripture and how do we understand the book of Revelation and how do we understand the tribulation? How do we understand uh, the rapture or any of those things? Because you can't just decide something means something in one p- place in Scripture. We have to balance all this Scripture. Right? Otherwise, it's not consistent. If Scripture is inconsistent, we have a problem. So, how, so is there a paradox here? The Lord says, now, what, you know, I, I know every hair on your head, yet some may be martyred and we're going to suffer, yet the Lord says that I, I know every hair on your head and I'm going to take care of you better than the sparrows. Well, let's keep in mind that in eternal life, all is restored to us. Amen? Even those that have lost everything. There's... there's there's, a, there's, there's an overlap here of, of the, uh, the world and the eternal. There's an overlap here. If we're with the Messiah, not a hair on our head will be lost. Whether we come again through the resurrection or we, or we, we survive the tribulation and the Lord is here, whatever the restoration is, you didn't, you're not going to lose anything. We can, we can relate to uh, Job this way, right? He lost everything except his life, yet it was all restored. That is a picture of eternity, right? There's, there's a parallel between the end of the story of Job and what the Lord is going to do for us. He, he let Satan do his best, yet Job made out better than when he started, didn't he? So if that's true in the book of, of, of Jonah, why isn't that same truth available to us in the apostolic writing? Why would it be different? The Lord never changes His mind. He's consistent with how He does things. He, if we are preserved, if He has preserved us through our faithfulness, then we're going to be preserved. But that pre- preservation is not about, the, about the, the mortal, but the immortal. Amen? Everybody with me? If you're worried about losing your life here, you've got a major issue because you're going to lose your life here. No matter what you do. And if the Lord chooses to use you as a martyr, you may lose that natural life, but you will have immortality. Which one do you guys want? Immortality, I would hope. But we fear more about the life here and what could happen. And we see all these bad things happening. But do you really trust in the eternal or not? Because the Lord is speaking spiritually to us in, 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 this, in this verse, right? In this verse, uh, in Luke, He's talking about the, 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 the kingdom of God. He's not focused on the carnal nature of this world. He's focused on the eternal. But we confuse that. Why? Because we love our lives and we want to hold on to everything here that we can when the Lord says, give it all up here. Don't hold on to anything. You know what? It isn't worth anything in the end. That eternal life 
is going to trump the mortal life. But I think a lot of us worry, well, do we really have eternal life? And if not, if I'm not sure, then I want to get every second and minute out of this life, no matter what choices I have to make to sustain this life. The resurrection is the complete promise, but not safety on earth. The resurrection has nothing to do with safety on this earth. The resurrection is eternal and spiritual. This earth isn't. Yet we worry about it. We worry about how we're going to get to the resurrection. You don't have to worry. The Lord tells you how to get to the resurrection. Love me. Obey my commands. and Be obedient. Boom. You're in. We spend more time figuring out how we can break the commandments or change them or twist them. And that's why we hold on so tightly to this mortal life. Because we don't really trust completely in the eternal one. Can you see how that works? I hope you can. Because we're all susceptible to it. You know, when our kids hurt, we hurt. You know, when good friends hurt, we hurt for them. I, I, I get it. And I'm not saying that, that, that we shouldn't reach out and, and, and do all that we can. But if our faith isn't entrusting the Lord for the eternal life, then we're doomed. Because it will put you in a position to make bad decisions here, which means lack of faith. The resurrection is the complete promise, but it's not about the safety on earth. When we can see this, we will no longer fear Hasatan, but the only one we should fear, the Holy One, Yeshua. I wonder how many, many of us in our private closets fear Satan more than we fear Yeshua. If we hold on to this life, we fear Satan. If we don't hold on to this life, we fear Yeshua. That's a simple way of saying it. The real safety is not in the flesh, but in the judgment. And we, in Yeshua, will not pay eternally. But those that trust in this world will pay. We must not confuse this world with the eternal one and its rewards. Remember Esau? He sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. How many of you have sold your birthright with Yeshua for something in this world? It's easy to happen. It was easy for Esau to do. He knew the Lord. And it was easy for him to sell his birthright for an immediate physical need. That, that bowl of porridge or whatever you want to call it that is an example for us. It's something in, in the world that we, He paid for and gave up an eternal blessing for. Because in the moment, the flesh ruled over Him. We must not confuse this world with the eternal One and its rewards. Some of us will supernaturally escape in the tribulation, miracles. Others will see the brunt of it, death. But as a whole, God is faithful to those who are faithful to Him. You either see Him now and make it through tribulation, or you see Him in the resurrection. I don't know how to weigh those, but to me, they're both equally good. This is what is being explained related to the community of Philadelphia, and indeed to us. They were struggling with this. We see this supported in chapter 21 of Revelation, when some will be pillars in the Lord's temple, marked by His name, part of the new Jerusalem. Amen? So, the next time I teach, Dan's teaching next week, but the week after, I'll be continuing in chapter 3. And I'm going to talk a little more about Sardis and Philadelphia. And we're also going to get to Laodicea. Um, but I end with one scripture from Thessalonians 5, 18-23. And everything give thanks, for this is what God wants from you, who are united with the Messiah Yeshua. And everything give thanks. The good, the bad, and the ugly. If we're not, our relationship is fractured with Yeshua. If we only give Him the glory for the good stuff and don't give Him the glory for all the other stuff, your relationship with Yeshua is not where it should be. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't despise inspired messages. I don't know if today is an inspired message, but don't despise it anyway. We, 
we learn from the Word of God. All I'm doing is giving you the Word of the Lord and, 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 and trying to fit us into it so it's not so foreign to us. Don't Spirit moves to this. I, you know, I pray that every message I write is written by the Holy Spirit, not by me. I used to write messages through the flesh. I don't do that anymore. I learned it a long time ago. Let the Lord do it. His messages are much better. Don't despise inspired messages. If you feel convicted, I would hope that's an inspired message speaking to you. The Lord has something to say to all of us. Don't shoot the messenger. If you believe that I've misquoted Scripture or whatever, you're more than welcome to talk to me, but you better be prepared. Have the Scriptures that you want to refute or talk about so we can, so we can discuss slash argue in context. Anybody that's debated Scripture with me knows that it can be tough. I am tough. I can be convinced I'm wrong, but you better be prepared. Right? Be prepared. I'm not always right even though some people think I'm not always right, but more so I am because if I'm just giving you Scripture, that's what it is. And I've been giving it to you in context. It's hard to be wrong if you give the Scripture in context. But I know I can be tough. But if, you're, if you really believe or you just somebody, you bring it to me and I'll give you a crack at it. I'll warn you, sometimes I come back a day or two later repenting, saying, you know, I think you got something there. And I know there's people I've had that happen with here. Um, I'm like you too. I can be stubborn. I will defend a position until the Holy Spirit shows me that that position is not defensive. So, oh yeah. Verse 21. But do test everything. I encourage everybody here to test everything. Test what I give you. Test what you read. Test what you see. By the Word of God, that's how you test it. And through the Holy Spirit, hold on to what is good, but keep away from every form of evil. I don't know all the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But I'm working at it. But... Hold on to the things that are true that you can affirm that they're true. And if you've got a question about something, let it go until the Lord can deal with you. You talk to me about it. Or Dan. Or Lee. I mean, I'm not the only door. I can't wait till I have 70 elders. <laughs> but i got two. And I trust both of them with spiritual discernment. If you're not, if you're not comfortable with me, and, and, I, and I, I'm grieved that people aren't comfortable with me, I get I'm, just, I'm demonstrative. But if you're not comfortable with me, go to Dan, go to Lee. Don't just leave something unsettled. And then if they're not sure, I guarantee you they will come to me and that we'll talk about it together. If Dan can put up with me for 10 years, you all can put up with me. I'm not sure in what that 10 year when he was comfortable, like year nine and a half or something probably. But verse, 20, uh, verse, uh, verse 23, may the God of Shalom make you completely holy. I don't make you holy. The Lord makes you holy. May your entire spirit, which is interesting, soul and body, be kept blameless for the coming of our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah. Amen. It's a bad world out there. So take solace in the word on Solace Radio.